0: Thank you for joining us for Following Christ, a weekly devotional podcast from One Passion Ministries featuring Dr. Stephen J. Lawson. Dr. Lawson will explore the life and teachings of Christ and show us how we can follow him more closely in our Christian walk. Let's join Dr. Lawson. I invite you to take that written word and turn with me to the Gospel of Matthew, Matthew chapter 5. Last Lord's Day we began a short series on the Beatitudes, which is the greatest sermon that our Lord ever preached. And last time together we gave an overview of the Beatitudes, which comprised the first twelve verses of Matthew chapter 5. And so... We now, beginning this morning, want to begin the journey of walking verse by verse and beatitude by beatitude through these eight beatitudes. I believe it can be argued it is the most important teaching that our Lord ever gave, for He defines what it is to be one who is in the kingdom of God, And in many ways, the entirety of Scripture intersects in these beatitudes. I want to begin reading in verse 1. Today we shall look at verse 3. The title of the message today is, Blessed Bankruptcy. Matthew chapter 5, beginning in verse 1. When Jesus saw the crowds, He went up on the mountain... And after he sat down, his disciples came to him. He opened his mouth and began to teach them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. We are living in days in which the subject of bankruptcy is in the news every day. Every time we turn on television and every time we open the newspaper, we are confronted with the grim reality that major companies all across the country are teetering on the brink of bankruptcy. To file for bankruptcy is to come to the sobering realization that one's cash inflow cannot keep up with one's indebtedness And cash outflow, a company as well as an individual finds themselves in an impossible cul-de-sac for which there is no escape. Liabilities far outweigh assets, cash outflow far surpasses cash inflow, and the company is unable to service debt obligations. And the company finally realizes it can no longer stay in business. The only way out is to file for bankruptcy. Only then can the company wipe the slate clean and get a new start. Only then can the organization find protection under the law to restructure its debt and to write off bad debt and to renegotiate its present contracts. Only then can the company start all over with any hope of doing business and turning a profit in the future. And as long as it remains where it is, as it is, things are only becoming worse, not better. Bankruptcy is a bitter pill to swallow. It requires facing the facts. And it necessitates admitting failure. But for those in such an impossible position, there is no other way out. This is what Jesus is teaching here in the spiritual realm. The entire human race is a majority stockholder in a once prosperous company called Adam and Sons. The future looked to be very bright. It is a global company with interests around the globe. It held vast real estate holdings the entire world and it had an exclusive contract to manage the planet for God. But Adam sinned and the entire human race fell with him and the stock became absolutely worthless, less than the paper on which it is printed. The entire human race immediately incurred massive debt with God. And the wages of sin is death. Physical death, emotional death, spiritual death, the second death, eternal death. And what is worse, everyone in the human race has committed their own acts of sin, placing themselves in an impossible situation. Every human being is spiritually broke and has no spiritual capital whatsoever. Every single individual has already been audited by God and found to be entirely unable to pay off their obligations with a thrice holy God in heaven. The debt that we owe to God because of Adam's sin and our sin is infinite. And it could never be paid off in a million trillion years, to borrow a number from our current national debt. The longer we go like this, it is only compounding in the wrong direction. We are becoming more and more and more indebted to a holy God in and of ourselves. What Jesus is saying in this first beatitude is that we must come to the realization that we are poor in spirit and declare personal bankruptcy before a holy God in heaven. Only in declaring bankruptcy is our debt wiped off the books. Only in declaring bankruptcy is the slate wiped clean. And we are given a new start. Only in declaring bankruptcy with God are the riches of heaven in the Lord Jesus Christ, credited to our account, and we are declared to be the righteousness of Jesus Christ. This is where the Beatitudes begin. We could call this first Beatitude the bankruptcy Beatitude. We must know that when we take this step, though, it leads to a blessed bankruptcy. I want us to look at this first beatitude. Let me read it one more time. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. I have five headings that I want to set before you. First, the priority. This first beatitude is so critically important because everything that follows rests upon this one. There is a logical sequence to be found here in the eight Beatitudes. This Beatitude of all Beatitudes must come first at the beginning. Apart from being poor in spirit, there is no entrance into the kingdom of God. And neither can there be any spiritual growth once we are in the kingdom, and there is no one in the kingdom of God who is not poor in spirit. And there is no one growing in the kingdom day by day, but that those who continue to recognize their spiritual bankruptcy before God. This beatitude is the most foundational characteristic of the Christian. Let me say this again. This beatitude is the single most foundational characteristic of any and every Christian inside the kingdom of God. If they are anything, they are those who are poor in spirit. Now, the reality is we are all poor in spirit. It's simply that there are those who recognize the reality of it and who declare bankruptcy with God and receive admission into the riches of His grace. This beatitude sits first because until we are poor in spirit, none of the other beatitudes will ever become reality. If we bypass this beatitude, we will never mourn. As verse 4 says, if we bypass this beatitude, we will never be gentle, we will never be meek. If we bypass this beatitude, we will never, ever hunger and thirst for righteousness, as verse 6 says. If we pass this beatitude, we will never be pure in heart, we will never be peacemakers, we will never be merciful, and we will certainly never be persecuted. This is what Alexander McLaren calls, quote, the fundamental characteristic of all Christ's disciples. Tragically, this is what the Pharisees never saw, and that is why they never entered the kingdom of God. The Pharisees had become experts at covering up their sin, at marginalizing their sin, at excusing their sin, at ignoring their sin. And on top of that, they were double experts in pointing out everyone else's sins. They never saw the depravity of their own hearts. They never saw sin as a heart issue. For them... Sin was merely the outward act. They bypassed the heart entirely. And they assumed they were right before God, as we will learn later in this chapter, because they had never killed anyone with their own hands. And Jesus will have to say, but I say unto you, if you have Hatred in your heart towards another person, you have committed murder. And they said, we are right with God because we've never committed adultery. But Jesus said, you have neglected your heart. For in your heart there is lust for other women, and you are an adulterer in the eyes of God. The Pharisees could only see the external, They never wanted to examine their own hearts. How desperately they needed to become poor in spirit. As Jesus says this, this was so counterintuitive to any spiritual thought that had ever come close to penetrating the cranium between their two ears They had no category to hear anything like this, that blessed are the poor in spirit. This beatitude intentionally stands first. It is like first base in a baseball game. Until you touch this base, you cannot go to second or third or come home and score. This beatitude is like the gatekeeper guarding the entrance into the rest of the beatitudes. Until you have the approval of this beatitude, you may not enter the kingdom of God. This beatitude is like the chief cornerstone around which all the other stones of the building must be laid. Until this beatitude is put into place, we cannot build upon The Lord Jesus Christ. This beatitude is the priority and it intentionally stands first by our Lord. This is where Jesus began with the rich young ruler. This is where Paul began with the Romans. This is where John began in his first epistle. No one can be saved until they confess and acknowledge that they are poor in spirit and no one can continue to grow in the Christian life unless they, in an ongoing basis, recognize that apart from Him we can do nothing and that we must continue to confess our sins before God on a constant and regular basis basis no one will grow in grace until they see their need for grace so being poor in spirit is the priority and we cannot experience the rest of these beatitudes until this beatitude is written upon the tablet of our hearts do you see the the priority of this beatitude Do you see that you cannot skirt it? You cannot go around it? You cannot move on to anything else that the Lord has for you? This beatitude stands in front of every one of us here today, and we must come to it and acknowledge what Christ requires of us. I want you to note, second, not only the priority, but the reality No sermon ever started in a more positive nature than did this sermon. Please note in verse 3, he begins with these two words, Blessed are. There is the reality of this that is being offered, not only to these listeners, but to each and every one of us, here today. Do not think that God is hiding His blessing from you. Do not think that, that the spiritual life is a game of hide-and-seek and whenever we get close to God's blessing, He moves it in some other direction so that we are always pursuing it but never quite get in on it. No. This is being held out to every one of us here today And it is the blessing of God, and we may have it if you will by faith reach out and take it to yourself. Blessed. We said last time this word blessed describes the man and the woman who is singularly favored by God. It describes two things. One. It refers to the person who has God's approval in the final judgment. It refers to the one who has God's redemptive, saving grace poured out upon their head, and they are under the grace of God. At the end of this verse, he makes it abundantly clear, lest there be any misunderstanding, when he says, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. To be blessed by God is to enter into the kingdom of heaven. And this tells us there are those who are in the kingdom, there are those who are outside the kingdom, and we were all born into this world outside the kingdom. We all have need of entering into the kingdom and the blessedness of God. The second, secondary meaning of this is not only salvation, but secondly, satisfaction. We talked about that last time. That this word blessed refers to the unique spiritual joy that belongs to those who are in the kingdom. When we enter into the kingdom... God puts a new song in our hearts. The weight of sin is removed. There is peace like a river that floods into our heart and soul. And we enter into, for want of a better word, the happiness of the Lord. Now, it's not a happiness like this world gives that is contingent upon our circumstances that comes and goes. It is a far deeper happiness that is rooted and grounded in the Lord Himself and in the reality of these beatitudes in our lives. Synonyms would be blissful, satisfied, fortunate, content, and such is the reality of all who enter the kingdom of God. This blessedness, Refers to the state, listen to this, of deep, spiritual, profound happiness that rests upon a true relationship with God through Jesus Christ. It is not found in empty religion. It is not found in bare ritual. It is found exclusively in a relationship with God through Jesus Christ. This blessedness is a deep, supernatural experience of contentedness that is based upon the fact that my life is approved by God, by His grace. Now this leads third. Not only the reality and the priority, I want you to see third, the bankruptcy. For we continue in verse 3, and now we get to the meat that's on the bone. Blessed are the poor in spirit. How strange that sounds, just to hear myself read this. Because we live in a world that says, happy are the rich, happy are the successful, happy are the beautiful, happy are the popular, Happy are the famous, and Jesus says nothing of that here. Now, you may be those things and be happy, but that's not why you're happy. You may be popular and famous and rich and be happy, but it's not because you're popular, rich, and famous. It will only be because you come to experience the reality of this beatitude, which is to declare personal bankruptcy before a holy God in heaven. Alexander McLean writes, All that the world commends and pats on the back, Christ condemns. And all that the world shrinks from and dreads, Christ bids us make our own and assures us that in it we shall find our true blessing. The poor in spirit, he says, they are the happy ones. So admittedly, this sounds so backwards. This is so reversed. It's so paradoxical. Jesus is saying, blessed, happy, favored, Joyful are those who are poor in spirit. Now, the question of the hour is, what is it to be poor in spirit? Let me begin by telling you what it is not. This is not referring, obviously, to financial poverty. This does not say, blessed are the poor in bank account." This does not say, blessed are the poor in pocketbook. In fact, if Jesus was here promoting material poverty, He would have contradicted the rest of the Bible. The Scripture tells us to give financial help to the poor. If Jesus was teaching the blessedness of financial poverty, then we should never help out anyone who is without Uh, We should make certain that everyone is penniless in this town. And once they are, then go and smile at them and pat them on the head and say, how blessed is everyone who has nothing. That is not what this is saying. Neither is is this referring to uh, someone who is poor in personality. This is not putting a premium on being a boring person. This is not saying blessed are the bland. And so when you enter the kingdom of God, you need to be neutered in your personality. This is not saying blessed are those Christians who are dull, monotonous, lifeless, unexcited, uninspiring, flat, dry, stale, tired, mundane, drab, lackluster. This is not saying blessed are the bland leading the bland. Some people misinterpret this beatitude for bad posture and think it is spiritual just to be someone who looks to be miserable. Neither is this promoting a false humility. You know, I'm a very unimportant person in this world. I really do not count for anything. I do not know why anyone would ever talk to me I have no contribution to make to anything. I'm a mere nobody. That's not humility. That is a pity party. In fact, that is self-pity, which means you're just focused on yourself. J. Vernon McGee would say you need to get rid of that stinking thinking. That's not what this is talking about. Instead, being poor in spirit means to recognize... What is the fact and the reality of your bank account with God? That you are spiritually impoverished before God in and of yourself. Such a person perceives and comes to realize that they possess no saving resources in themselves and are reduced to a place of begging For grace and mercy. Such a one knows that they have no spiritual merit and no spiritual capital in and of themselves to commend themselves to God. They come and stand empty-handed before God. And they say, In my hands no price I bring. Simply to thy cross I cling. Pride is gone. Self-righteousness is gone. They stand confessing their sin and their need for free grace from God. Let's look at this word more carefully, the word poor. It's a Greek word, tokos. In the Greek language, there are many different words that are synonyms for poor. The word that Jesus chooses here is intentionally the word for poor that is the most destitute that there could possibly be. Wealth is a relative thing, right? What is rich to one is poor to another. The word Jesus chooses here is poor on anyone's scale of what is wealth and what is poverty. This word from the Greek language means to crouch, to cower, to shrink, to cringe. It pictured a beggar who crouched in a corner, holding out an empty hand, possessing absolutely nothing, too ashamed to even look up into the face of those who would walk by simply holding out an empty hand and being entirely at the mercy of those who would walk by and to be willing to say, alms for the poor, alms for the poor. It is to be reduced to the role of a beggar. This is the word that Jesus uses. Not someone who's just barely able to get by. Not someone who doesn't have enough at the end of the month to do a few discretionary things. Picture someone who has zero and can only cringe and cower and beg. Notice the next two words. In spirit small s spirit refers to the innermost depths of a person's being it it really encompass encompasses the entire inner life in spirit defines the arena of the poverty it has nothing to do with what's on the outside of a person it has everything to do with what is on the inside of of a person, and at the very depths of the core of their being. Jesus is saying, blessed are those who carefully look inside of themselves and see themselves as God sees them and see how spiritually that bankrupt they really are. To be poor in spirit means to recognize that I am spiritually impoverished. It means that I declare spiritual bankruptcy before God, confessing I have nothing to commend myself towards God and nothing to contribute to God. It means that I crouch low before God, that I shrink back from Him, realizing that I have no merit of my own with which... To secure God's approval, it means that I extend an empty hand out to God, entirely dependent upon His mercy and grace, for Him to give to me His riches in Christ. A.W. Pink, one of the great Bible teachers of the past century, says, What is poverty of spirit? To be poor in spirit is to realize I have nothing, that I am nothing, and that I can do nothing, and that I have need of all things. Poverty of spirit is a consciousness of my emptiness the result of the Spirit's work within me. It issues from the painful discovery that all my righteousnesses are as filthy rags. It follows the awakening that my best performances are unacceptable. Yes, an abomination to the thrice Holy One. Poverty of Spirit evidences itself by its bringing the individual into the dust before God, acknowledging His utter helplessness and deservingness of hell. It corresponds to the the initial awakening of the prodigal in the far country when he began to be in want. Pink adds, it is the opposite of that haughty, self-assertive, self-sufficient disposition which the world so admires and praises. It is the very reverse of that independent and defiant attitude which refuses to bow to God, which determines to brave things out, which says with Pharaoh, Who is the Lord that I should obey Him? The one who is poor in spirit... Realizes that I am nothing, I have nothing, I can do nothing, and I am in need of everything that only God can give. This is how we must all enter into the kingdom of God. Turn with me to several passages. Let's take an excursion together. Come to Luke chapter 18. Luke chapter 18, and I want to stack some verses on top of each other and to pour the Scripture through this keyhole of verse 3. Luke chapter 18 and verse 9, Jesus told this parable to some people who trusted in themselves that they were righteous. Now, these people were the Pharisees. These were those who never audited their own heart and saw that they were poor in spirit on the inside. They lived in total denial. They they lived like an ostrich with its head buried in the sand and pretended to live as though they were rich, when in reality they were absolute spiritual paupers before a holy God. And they had; they were self-deceived. They were deceived into thinking that they were right with God because of everything that was on the outside, because all their externals, because they came to the house of worship, because they could verbally uh, say the right things, pray the right prayers, give their gifts. And they trusted in themselves. And at the end of verse 9, Luke 18, they viewed others with contempt. They could look down their long nose had others around them, and pulled themselves up. And so they always measured themselves in light of someone else. And they could always find others who sounded less spiritual, looked to be less spiritual on the outside. So, verse 10, Jesus tells them this story. Two men went up into the temple to pray, One a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. As Jesus begins to tell this story, you can just see the chests of the Pharisees begin to be pushed out. Two people go up to pray. One a Pharisee, the other a tax collector. The Pharisees were the most highly esteemed religious people on the planet at this time. They tried to follow the letter of the law to the most minute detail. They woke up in the morning trying to keep the law. They went throughout the day trying to keep the externals of the law. They came to temple every time the door was open. They fasted. They tithed. They prayed. They read. They studied. They did anything and everything on the outside that would give the appearance of spirituality. And the tax collector was the most despised person in Israel because he was a Jew who sold himself out to the Roman Empire to have a franchise whereby he could collect taxes from his fellow Jews and keep whatever extra he could milk out of them. There was no one more hated in Israel than a tax collector, and there was no one thought to be more close to God than a Pharisee. So no doubt the people were getting way out ahead of themselves, out of Christ. As he begins to tell this story, they can already write in the bottom line, we know how this is going. So verse 11, the Pharisees stood and was praying this, please note, to himself. That's what Pharisees do. They have no relationship with God. They just talk to themselves when they pray. God, God, I thank you. Now this is good. He's a very thankful person. Notice for that for which he gives thanks. I thank you that I'm not like other people. Well, we could give thanks for that as well, could we not? Swindlers, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. You can always find some drunk in the gutter and measure yourself by them and seem to be on the outside a little bit better than they are. So, this Pharisee is an expert at finding someone in the newspaper or someone on television that's a total reprobate and measuring themselves by them and going, I must be pretty good with God because I'm not as bad as Adolf Hitler. Now look at verse 12. I fast twice a week. I pay tithes of all that I get. This man is an egomaniac strutting his way to hell. Hell. Verse 13, but the tax collector, standing some distance away. The reason he does is because that's how he perceives himself with God. He realizes he is a long way away from God. He realizes he has no basis to approach a holy and a perfect God. He is standing some distance away, was even unwilling to lift up his eyes to heaven. Remember, I said the beggar, unwilling, too ashamed to even lift up his eyes and to look into the face of the one from whom he would receive coins. He knows he's unworthy. It's an act of self-deprecation. and was beating his breast. It's an act of self-condemnation. An act of self-renunciation. He knows that if he asks for justice from God, He would receive hell. He looks inside of himself and he sees that he's bankrupt. That he has nothing to bring to God. To turn away the righteous anger of God toward him. He's a long ways away and knows how unreconciled he is with God. He knows he can make no payment By which he would redeem his own soul, the only thing that he can do is to cry out for what he does not deserve, to ask God for mercy. And so he says at the end of verse 13 God, be merciful. Show grace. Show favor. Extend compassion to me. Now, watch this. Not a sinner, but the sinner. He's not comparing himself to anyone else and saying, Well, I'm a little bit better than someone else. I guess I must only be a sinner. All he can see is God. He sees how holy God is. The law is being read in the the temple. The Psalms are being sung in the temple. He comes to the realization of how sinless God is, how flawless God is, how morally excellent God is. And it never dawns on him that anyone on this earth could be further away from God than him. He assumes, I am the sinner. I am the chief of sinners. I am the biggest sinner that there is. God, be merciful to me, the sinner. What Jesus now says in verse 14 is the knockout punch of all knockout punches. Never did a story have a more surprise ending than did this parable. I tell you, this man referring to the tax collector this vile, worldly tax collector who asks for mercy. This man went to his house justified rather than the other. To be justified is to be declared right by God. It is to be declared in the kingdom. It is to be declared in the realm of redemption and in the sphere of salvation. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but he who humbles himself will be exalted. There you have the first beatitude. It is for every one of us here today to come to the stark Realization that I have sinned, that I have fallen short of the glory of God, that I am nothing, I have nothing, and I can do nothing to commend myself to God. I am reduced to the place of a beggar who would crouch and cower in a corner and extend an empty hand out to God and say to God, as the leper who would come into the village, unclean, unclean. Alms for the poor. It is this one, Jesus says, who is blessed, and who inherits the kingdom of God. But the one who's Life is merely outwardly religious and there is a self-righteousness and never looks within his or her own heart, that one is cursed, not blessed. That one is outside the kingdom, not inside the kingdom. Look at John chapter 16 just for a moment. And verse 8. I'm looking at so many verses on my paper, I don't know which one to turn to. But look at John 16, verse 8. Let me skip over several and and come to this. Jesus is talking about the Holy Spirit, who would be sent into the world on the day of Pentecost, who would come and in essence take His place on the earth. Another helper exactly like Him. And He, the Holy Spirit, would have a ministry to believers, but He would also have a ministry in the world. Now, what will be the ministry of the Holy Spirit in the world? Verse 8. And He, referring to the Helper of verse 7, who is the Holy Spirit, when He comes, He will convict the world. That means accuse the world. That means condemn the world. Concerning sin and righteousness, and judgment. No one can be saved apart from the Holy Spirit of God performing this ministry to bring a person to the place where they have pressed to their heart the sentence of condemnation by God. It is only then As they come under such conviction, do they declare personal bankruptcy? And God then pours out the oceans of His grace and His favor and His forgiveness and His blessing. But only when we first come under this conviction of sin. Look at verse 9. Concerning sin, because they do not believe Me. There is a specific sin above all other sins. It is the sin of unbelief, failure to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, that the Holy Spirit will continue to cinch the knot around the throat of the heart until there is the recognition and confession of Christ as Lord. Verse 10, and concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father and you no longer see me, the Holy Spirit will convict that the only basis of going to heaven is to have the perfect righteousness of the Lord Jesus Christ given to us through the doctrine of of justification by faith. That only Christ in His perfect righteousness could go to the Father and be received into heaven And only those who believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ will receive His perfect righteousness and follow Him into heaven. And then in verse 11, "...and concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world has been judged." If the devil has been judged then so will every sinner on the last day. And it is the ministry of the Holy Spirit to take the sword of the Spirit and to put the tip of the sword into the throat of the sinner and to press until there is the confession, I am bankrupt, I have nothing, O Lord, have mercy upon me, the sinner. And our flesh is so wicked and vile that the offer of all the mercies and all the grace of God and forgiveness is insufficient to bring about repentance. There must be the ministry of the Holy Spirit to convict of sin and righteousness and judgment. And God will only save where there is the preaching of sin and righteousness and judgment. But it leads to a blessed bankruptcy. Because when we cry out, God, be merciful to me, the sinner, that is when God opens the windows of heaven and lavishes His grace upon us in the person of His Son, Jesus Christ. Now, this is how we enter the kingdom and this is how we grow and advance in the kingdom. As we, as we mature, as we develop, as we grow, we grow closer to the light. God is light and in Him there is no darkness at all. And as we grow closer to the light there are even more imperfections that are revealed in us. And that is why every day we are to confess our sins. And to be poor in spirit is not a one-step experience on the front end. It is to be a moment-by-moment, daily, ongoing, continual, habitual lifestyle experience as we walk in the grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. Every one of us here today will only grow spiritually to the point that we are regularly, continually aware that we are poor in spirit. And as John fifteen five says, apart from me you can do nothing. We are to come before God. We are to confess our sins to God. We are to remain humble. We are to remain direly in need of His grace. There's not a one of us in this room who is in the kingdom of God who does not need to go home after this service and to confess all of your sins to God, to be poor in spirit, and to do so while mourning over those sins, and to be meek and gentle that there would be a hungering for righteousness on an ongoing basis as we live the Christian life. In fact, in the Apostle Paul, let me conclude this point with this, and I'll see if I can wrap this up quick enough. As Paul grew as a Christian, he grew in a greater realization of the poverty of his spirit. And I want to back that up. I want to give you three verses to write down. He was not becoming more nonchalant about being poor in spirit. He was becoming more sobered as he grew in grace. The first is 1 Corinthians 15.10. Paul says, But by the grace of God I am what I am. The previous verse... Paul said in 1 Corinthians 15, 9, I am the least of the apostles and not fit to be called an apostle. The date of that writing is 55 A.D. I am the least of the apostles. Six years later, in 61 A.D., Paul wrote to the, to the Ephesians... And in Ephesians 3, verse 8, Paul writes, To me, the very least of all the saints. Paul goes from seeing himself as the least of the apostles to the least of the saints. And then, in 1 Timothy 1, verse 15, I believe two years later, He says, Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, among whom I am foremost of all. Please note the growing realization of the poverty of His Spirit. He went from seeing Himself as the least of the apostles to the least of all the saints to the least of all sinners. That is why Romans chapter 7, Paul pours out his heart and speaks of that which I do, I don't want to do, and that which I don't do, I I should do, and the internal conflict within him as a believer, as a Christian, he continued to wrestle moment by moment with the impoverishedness of his own spirit And that he could say only, I am what I am by the grace of God. What a humble man the Apostle Paul was. And a man who continued to realize his need for grace every moment of every day. I want to wrap this up very quickly by giving you the fourth heading. I can do this in 30 seconds. I heard that. The exclusivity. Blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs. It is emphatic as our Lord says this. Meaning, theirs and theirs alone. Theirs and theirs only. There will be no happiness. There will be no joy. There will be no favor. There will be no blessedness. Apart from being poor in spirit, and to the degree that we come to recognize the poverty of our own inner soul, it will only be to that degree do we experience the supernatural joy and fulfillment of the Lord Jesus Christ. These and these alone are blessed, Jesus says. These and these alone enter the kingdom. These and these alone possess the kingdom. This is the exclusivity of the blessedness that is ours in Christ. Finally, the certainty. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. There are, there, there are no ifs, ands, and buts about it. Jesus did not say, blessed are the poor in spirit, for they might, maybe, possibly possess the kingdom of heaven. No, Jesus is saying, if you will come to recognize your your own sinfulness, your own need for grace, your calling out to the Lord for grace then you will inherit the kingdom of God. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. The kingdom of heaven is the kingdom of God. It is the kingdom of grace. It is the kingdom of glory. It is the kingdom of eternal life. It is the kingdom of forgiveness of sins. It is the kingdom of salvation in all of its many facets. Justification, sanctification, glorification. It is the kingdom of a complete salvation, the sum total of all blessings. This is the certainty. How may I become poor in spirit? Maybe there's even some resistance in your heart as you hear me say this. Maybe there's some wall you're wanting to put up and saying, I don't want to hear about my sin. How can you become poor in spirit? Certainly not by looking at others around you and saying, look at all the people who aren't in church today. Look at all the people who don't know the Bible. Look at all the people out there who are committing acts of violence. I'm here in church today. I have a dress on. I have a coat and tie on. I'm dressed up. I look nice. I have my family around me. Then you will never see yourself as God sees you. There is only one way to be poor in spirit. And that is to look to the holiness of God. And if you were to look at the moral perfection and the infinite purity of God Almighty, who is infinitely more brighter than for you to stare at the noonday sun, if you were for a moment to see holy, holy, holy He is. You would be like Isaiah who said, Woe is me. For I am ruined because I am a man of unclean lips and I live among a people of unclean lips. Now here it is. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. If you say you have no sin, you have never seen the King. You have never seen the holiness of God. You live in a cave of darkness and you have no sense of reality of God. if you see the holiness and the purity of God you would see your own sin and you would smite your breast and you would be unable to lift up your eyes and you would say God be merciful to me the sinner let me make it even more easy for you to be poor in spirit In Exodus 20, there is recorded the Ten Commandments. Measure yourself by the Holy Law, not merely in outward action, but in heart reality. Do you love God? with all of your heart, all of your soul, all of your mind, and all of your strength? Have you ever been more excited about anything, even for a moment, than you are excited about God? Has anything ever been more important to you than God? Has anyone ever... Captured your thoughts more than God captures your thoughts? Have you ever said or used God's name in a way less than total reverence? Have you ever failed to honor the Lord on the Lord's day? Have you ever dishonored your parents? Have you ever thought about dishonoring your parents? Have you ever wanted something that someone else has? Have you ever twisted what you're saying to give an appearance other than what it is? Have you ever taken something that wasn't yours? Have you ever thought about taking something that wasn't yours? Have you ever used your tongue in an inappropriate way? Have you? Do you see what a sinner you are? Do you see how dirty... Filthy, vile we all are? Do you see what a game it would be to pretend like none of this has ever happened? Do you see how deceived we often are and fail to realize? How bankrupt, how bankrupt we are before a holy God. If we are to possess the kingdom of heaven, it will belong only to those who smite their breast, who stand a long way off, and admit it's me. It's me. It's me, O Lord. And once we come into the kingdom, we must be holy as He is holy. Do you ever still sin as a Christian? Do you ever fall short of the glory of God. What need we all have to be coming before God's throne of grace and continually confessing our sin to God that we might have the riches of His grace. If you have never believed upon Christ, believing upon Christ is not just walking an aisle, raising a hand, praying a prayer, signing a card, like cattle being herded. Becoming a Christian is coming to the place where you see the holiness of God. And you see your own unholiness. And you long to be clothed in the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ. Stand naked before God. Stand exposed of all of your sin. Ask God to clothe you with the righteousness of Christ. And that is the only way to find entrance into the kingdom of heaven. But if you will, you will no longer be cursed. You will become blessed. For there is no other way to be blessed by God Let us pray. Father, we are a congregation of bankrupt sinners who have lost all their spiritual capital, who have undergone a... Stock market crash of episodic proportions as all that we once were in Adam has come crashing down. And all of our attempts to gain it back have utterly failed before you. We thank you for Christ. We thank You for His coming into this world to save us from our sins. How foolish we would be to fail to acknowledge our sin to You. May You make our sin known that we might cry out for mercy and grace. Father, we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You have been listening to Following Christ, a weekly devotional podcast from One Passion Ministries and Dr. Stephen J. Lawson. For more information about One Passion Ministries, please visit our website at onepassionministries.org. Until next time, thank you for joining us for Following Christ.